What's cracking, everybody? Welcome to the Cat and Cloud podcast. This week, I sit down with Guy Kawasaki to discuss his new book, Wise Guy. And it seems really ridiculous in this moment that I'm recording this, that I'm actually recording an introduction for someone like Guy Kawasaki, whose body of work basically speaks for itself. Most people will know Guy as an author. A lot of people would associate him with Apple and specifically the marketing around the original Macintosh campaign in 1984. He truly is, I feel, someone who actually needs no introduction. This one's also a little full circle for me in that the first business book I ever read was his The Art of the Start. I used to read it when I worked in San Francisco and I take Bart into the city, read it on the train going into the city, read it on the train on my way out of the city. I really had no intention of starting a business back then, but I was a little curious and I just knew that his book was the one to read. Aside from being this prolific figure in marketing, business, writing, Guy is also a huge supporter of Cat and Cloud. He comes into the cafes and a decent chunk of this book was actually written inside the four walls that is Cat and Cloud. And that that makes me feel real warm and fuzzy inside. The book is amazing. It's a compilation of the most enlightening stories of his life. I love books that are in story format. I found this one really engaging. I burned through the entire thing in a day because I was so locked in. There's so many lessons to unpack in this book. And the thing that left me the most excited after talking with Guy was how much mindset and how much attitude filters into what you're able to get done, how you see the world and how you treat other people. There are instances in this book where things are thrown at him that are just downright blatantly racist. And instead of playing the victim and running one way, which I I would assume would be a really natural thing to do. Guy is continually trying to build and find common ground with people who for all intents and purposes, he doesn't seem to have a ton in common with, but if he can find one thing in common with him, he's able to build that bridge. And I, I, that attitude is just amazing to me. And it it was really inspiring. My other favorite moment was probably when I insinuated that someone of his caliber would accept a ridiculously small amount of money to do a speaking engagement. And he played with me a little bit on that one. If you haven't picked up the book, definitely give it a look. There'll be links in the show notes to check it out. I'm going to stop gabbing. We're going to get into it with Guy Kawasaki. The Cat and Cloud Coffee Podcast is sponsored by Steeped Coffee. Steeped Coffee is a new brewing method that combines specialty craft coffee into a single serving bag. You don't need a machine. You don't have to make a mess. All you have to do is add hot water wherever you go. Each steep pack is individually sealed. It's nitrogen flush, so it stays fresh. And it's got this special full immersion filter. And the filter is ultrasonic sealed, which means it's sealed together with no glue or no staples. So there's no weird stuff floating around in your coffee. Steeped is a benefit B Corp. They ethically source all their coffee. Their packaging is fully compostable. And they believe that business should be done without compromise. You can get your hands on steeped coffee packs at steepedcoffee.com that's s-t-e-e-p-e-d coffee.com asking your local retail stores to start carrying steeped or having your favorite roastery reach out and kind of get in touch if you're in santa cruz come on by any of the cat and cloud locations we have it there for you basically they're just doing their best to change the coffee industry make your life more convenient with their pre-portioned pre-ground innovation so tell all your friends okay so you've written 15 books Huh? This book, Wise Guy, is your 15th book. Yep. And there's so many things going on in this book. It's it's not <laughs> it's not an autobiography book, but the way no. I see it, it got me really curious because it almost 
it almost feels like a coming of age kind of book. And what I mean by that, well, you don't come of age at sixty four. <laughs> <laughs> that might be true. I mean, only Are you, you can tell. I'm, I'm delayed. I, I can't. <laughs> well, in some ways, yes, in the sense of if you take some of the stories... Not all the stories are from recent parts of your life. No, not at so all. So a lot of the stories are from way, 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 way back before when. Before you were born. Before I was born. <laughs> even going back to your uh, teacher, was it Harold Keebles? Yes, in, in high school. And you, you're saying like, oh, you can't really assess the value of a teacher until maybe 20 years after, after he's here. And you've got all these nuggets of wisdom. So what the thing that I'm really, really curious about <laughs> was, was there a point in time in your life where you feel like you made this transition from... Being this quote-unquote normal person, mm-hmm. you know, I'm doing work, I'm <laughs> doing what everybody else does, to entering into this phase to where I feel like I'm really qualified to give advice or I've reached a place where people will oh. listen to me. <laughs> it, it's not clear that I believe that yet. <laughs> so maybe you looking at me believe that. <laughs> me looking at me doesn't necessarily believe that. Um, th- that's a slippery slope, you know. You start believing your own bullshit. Right. <laughs> Although you have to believe in your own bullshit to write a book, to at, be honest. At some level, it <laughs> yes, seems like. Yes, yes, But I, it's, let me put it to you this way. I have not crossed the threshold where I believe I'm a guru. Right. And I am never going to th- cross that threshold on purpose. If I come to that threshold, I will back off. I don't want to be a cult figure, uh, you know, the Guy Kawasaki seminar, and you pay five grand for two days and you hug each other and you know you do <laughs> yoga and you beat drums that ain't me real intense motivational speaking <laughs> that's stuff. not me that it's interesting that you say that because <laughs> you're, you're definitely one of the more prolific speakers yeah um of our time at least in the sense that people generally know who you are yes and for example I think this is amazing. So you came into the shop the other day, and you brought in 12 copies of your book. Yeah. And you autographed them all. Well, 10, but yeah. 10. Oh, oh man. I, I posted 12. Hopefully, okay, that's oh, all right. Hopefully, I didn't shortchange anyone. <laughs> but at some point, you, you cross over to this thing to where it's like, yeah, generally, people would like to have my, my autograph, you know? And there's... Through your writing, it doesn't come off like you're full of yourself at all. <laughs> like it's really humble because the whole book is about learning. Yeah. But I'm I'm always curious about that transition from. I, I try to not measure success by you know like the normal means. I feel like people who are successful are, are in their zone regardless of what financial status they've achieved yeah. or you know career path they've taken. But I'm so curious as to when. Like, if there were indicators that that had kind of turned for you, like, oh, people would like to have my autograph, I think. I must admit that I don't give that a lot of thought. Okay. So it's not like I one day woke up and said, Guy, you have truly arrived. Um, though, you know, there have been, let's say, positive reinforcement <laughs> along the way. So it's not like I also wake up and say, guy, you're a total failure either. Okay, don't get me wrong. But I don't take myself that serious. Okay. And actually, you could build the case that surfing has helped because I know how clueless I am in surfing. So when you start believing your own bullshit and you think you're infallible and you you can do everything, then you take up something like surfing, you realize, man, you're just a freaking speck. (laughs) Dust in the universe, out on 38th. 
the stories that you tell about surfing in the book were really interesting because you're so established in the business and speaking world and starting relatively late in life to take on something new. Uh, not relatively, very. very. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to be as kind as I can okay, be. I think okay, I appreciate got a, that. You, you, you got a lot of time left in you, I think. <laughs> we'll see. From seeing your energy around here. But, and you talk about going about it, like, for all intents and purposes, the completely wrong way. <laughs> I.e., here's a dude who's using, like, a big stand-up paddle board to surf, like, I, in the prone style and things that people would make I disagree that that's wrong. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's an awesome point. But something that people would be like, oh, dude, that guy's a kook. Like, what is that guy doing? I understand that. So... What is your thought process? Because I think that's something that a lot of people okay, can benefit so, from. You see a, a standard path, and you want to always take okay. that path. So for better or for worse, my line of thinking was I started with paddle surfing. I started with paddle boarding because I wanted to improve my balance and core for hockey, not for paddle surfing or surfing at all. It was for hockey. So it was a means to an end, and then it became an end, and... It seems to me that, you know, for someone starting surfing at 62, you're primarily concerned about catching waves and paddling. And so I'm not going to be like, you know, doing bottom turns and top turns and getting air and, you know, all that stuff. And so the calculation was, well, longer and wider is better for a beginner, particularly older. So... And I, and I go out to 38th, and I see all these beginners on eight-foot wave storms. And I'm asking myself, like, this does not make any sense to me. Why would you start on an eight-foot wave storm except that it's cheap? And so probably what happened to those people is everybody has a buddy who is a good surfer, right? Right. So you go to your buddy, you say, I want to learn how to surf. And your buddy is surfing on a five-foot short board, right? And so your buddy says, oh, I'm good. I've been surfing my whole life. I'm on a five-foot board. This kook is starting later, so he needs a much longer board, eight feet. In, the, in, in your buddy's mind, you've gone from five to eight. Oh, my God, three feet. That's such a long board. But, I mean, truly, people should start on a 10-foot board, right? Right. So I looked at that. I said, huh, so, you know, a high-performance paddle board, which is like 8.4 or something, is wider, thicker, much more... Um, uh, volume, so why not start on that? And so that's what I did. And you know, okay, so I look like a kook, so what? I don't care. <laughs> but you're surfing, I'm surfing, you're doing what you want to do. I, I am, and, and I've progressed, right? Is that that mindset that you've had? Have you had that your your whole career looking at alternative ways to do things? Uh, I, I don't, I don't think I, you know, consciously said, okay, so everybody says this, I'm gonna do it. I'm not being different for the sake of being different. Right. I'm being different because of my analysis, incorrect or correct. So, so you're willing to go outside of the norm. It's more about functionality for you? I, it's, it's, it's how you get to the goal. Right. Right? And so if the goal is to surf, and my line of reasoning was, well, a high-performance paddleboard is a low-performance surfboard. I, done. I done, right? <laughs> or, I mean, you know, I also, I had a, I, I use a 10-foot a SurfTech soft top and an 11-foot SurfTech soft top. And, my God, it is much easier to catch waves on those two boards. So I look at all the people, 
at 38th and they're on eight foot wave storms and I, you know, I'm out there two hours, they're out there two hours and they catch two waves. And I'm saying to myself, like, something is wrong with this picture. Like, wouldn't you be intelligent enough to know that, well, maybe something is wrong? And so... <laughs> but I think... <laughs> yeah. I'd love to know if you agree. Yeah. What you're describing in this microcosm of surfing out yeah. here on Pleasure Point and people riding boards that are, in reality, too small for them. And yes. they would be much happier on a, on a larger board, yes. even though it wouldn't be, quote unquote, as cool, cool. Yes. is something that permeates throughout society especially with social right. media being as big as it is Absolutely. Where people see someone doing this there, like i need to do it that way too or there, I'm, I'm there is a lesson there yeah that, you know the wisdom of the crowd might not be so wise um and but but at some level it also takes basic you know thinking and analysis that a lot of surfing is physics right <laughs> and the physics of a longer board that's wider means easier paddling, more stable. That's physics. That's not, that's not because, you know, Kelly Slater <laughs> reinvented right. physics. That's physics. And so, you know, a minivan is not going to handle as well as a sports car. <laughs> the center of gravity is wrong. So uh, I, I also, I came to another conclusion, which is, I understand the desire to look cool. Right. Absolutely. Totally. So, you know, when you walk from your house on East Cliff, you don't want to be carrying... You know, when I, when I walk with a 10 or 11-foot board, people come up to me and goes, is that a paddle board? No, this is a surfboard I'm carrying. Is yeah. that a paddle board? Um, you know, and I say, yeah, you know, it's a surfboard, it, but it has its own Wi-Fi hotspot. There's an honor bar. Everything is built in, okay? <laughs> but I came to this conclusion that when people see you walk to the water and you're carrying this big board, you look not cool. Right. But when people are watching people surfing, they really can't tell the length of your board. Right. But they can they, tell. You look way cooler if you're catching waves. If you're catching waves. <laughs> so where do you want to look cool? Walking to the break or on the water? Damn. That's and, right. And so right now, my main board is 11-2. And it's made by Bob Pearson. So can I tell you a funny story? Is there a limit to this time? No, okay, do it. Okay. Yeah, go for so, it. So uh, Calder Nold over here at the surf school, Right. he teaches my kids and I how to surf. Because without him, I would not be a surfer. And so one day, he tells me, oh, these people from 38th came up to me and complained about your daughter and son. They are catching too many waves. So they want me to tell them to cool it and not catch so many waves. So he says to me, on the one hand, I think, okay, I got to talk to them. Don't be so selfish. You know, give other people a chance. On the other hand, is it their fault that they're better than you? That, that he taught them better than you? That they can paddle better than They have better balance? Whose fault is that? I mean, if you can't catch a wave, what do you do? Complain to the... So anyway, so he gives me this whole explanation. And finally, I said to him, Calder, when they complain about my kids... Did anybody say that I was catching too many waves? And Calder says, no, guy, you were never brought up. <laughs> and, so, and so a few weeks later, I see Bob Pearson. I said, Bob, let me tell you this story. I tell him this story. I said, Bob, I want you to make me the board that I can sit outside on 38th, outside of everybody, on these zero to two, three-foot days, 
and I can catch every wave because the goal is that people complain about me to callers that I am catching too many waves. Bob, make me that board. And he made me the 11-2 glider. And that's the goal. That story, which is in a book, made me laugh so hard. Especially if I were, anybody complaining about me? No. I, I think it's interesting what, what you bring up about about your kids and the people complaining about them. And you're yeah. like, is it their fault that they're not good enough? There's another theme that kind of repeats in the book, which is about people taking on that victim mentality. Exactly. And the example where you have Condoleezza Rice. And it's, if you start yes. acting like a victim, you're going to become, become a victim. victim. And, yes. and you who've experienced these racial tensions, it seems like uh, quite a lot. Not a, a de- lot. Well, a few, a few times that you mentioned are really casual about sweeping them to the <laughs> side. Like, you know, well, what's going through your, through listen, your mind? If, if my logic, going back to the surfing story, is if I saw some people catching too many waves, one path is, you go to their father, mother, or coach and complain, right? They're catching too many ways. Tell them to, I don't know, stand in, whatever, right? right? My logic would be to go to a surfing instructor and say, you know, those guys are catching so many more waves. Tell me how I can be like them. What do I have to do? Conditioning, sitting, board length, whatever. So there's two kinds of logic. One is the victim. I'm the victim. I'm not catching enough waves. Tell those people to catch less. The other is I want to be better than them. That's my logic. And that logic has served me very well through my life. I can see why. It's, it, the, I mean, the concept of ownership is really interesting because at the end of the day, you're the only person that you can control. Like, yes. You can't control what other people think about you. You can't control other people's actions. But you do have an amount of control over what you do, you do. where you put your energy. <laughs> and I, I think that was really interesting, the story about you know, I, you're I, trimming I, your hedges outside <laughs> of your house in San Francisco. And the woman comes up and asks, like, oh, you're doing, yeah, you're doing yeah, such a great job. You do, you do lawns, too? Yeah. yeah. Um, but see, that... That's a that's an interesting story, and in a sense, this you know fast forward to, to to this point about surfing. But in a sense, my father taught me this surfing lesson. I don't know, twenty three years ago. So you know, people listening don't understand the context. So I was out. Uh, we had a really nice house on Union Street in San Francisco, right where it dead ends into the Presidio. So it's a nice place. Okay. And it's like the Opal Cliffs right. <laughs> of Union. Didn't oh, Bill Murray so, live over there? Or, I don't know. Gettys live there. Okay, yeah. there you go. So, so this I was trimming my hedge, and this lady asked me if I do yards, if I do lawns. And so one reaction is the victim mentality, right? So just because I'm Japanese, you assume I'm the yard man, you know, racial profiling, suppression, you know, all that shit, right? So that was my initial reaction. Two weeks later, my father visits me, and I tell him this story. And I thought he was going to go off on this lady, right? Like, how dare this woman, you went to Stanford, you work for Apple, you've written, I don't know, whatever, seven books at that point. And he says to me, you know, guy, Japanese-American person standing, cutting hedges on Union Street, statistically, she was right. You probably were the yard man, so get over it. Don't take it personally. Don't look for problems. You know, she was mistaken, but, you know, deal with that with humor. You don't have to go, like, you know, off the rails because of that. Same thing with somebody's kids catching too many waves. 
Aside from letting those things kind of roll off your back, taking ownership of what you can and, yeah. and using that as motivation, you also seem to be really good about finding the middle ground with people, especially <laughs> when it's something that's Apple related yeah. in the story with the, the gentleman that you met in the Apple store who said, he made a comment to you. He's like, you know what, guy? Or maybe it wasn't in the store. Maybe it was when you were evangelizing. He said, I was born too, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. too late for slaves and too early for, for robots. robots. Yeah. And that is insane. But you're like, you know what? We both love Apple. We both love Macintosh. And you're able to build a bridge. This, and this was in Alabama. Oh, geez. Yeah. yeah. So I'm in Alabama. And this guy comes up to me and says, us too late for slaves, too early for robots. <laughs> and I mean, that is such a ludicrous statement that I could only laugh. Now, I'm not black, so, you know, I might have taken it more severely, but I'm not white either. And, you know, there's like a lot of lessons here. So, one, that was kind of an unthinking thing for him to say right. to anybody. But, but, um, you know, the lesson I learned is, well, you know, give people benefit of the doubt. And I looked at it as a very funny situation. Obviously, I remembered it to this day. And I also learned that, you know, if you can build some common interests, it can eclipse the differences. Now, that can work in many different ways. So it can work positively, right? So, you know, two people can't get along, but finally they find out they both hate opera, so now they can become friends. Good. But it can also work in the sense that, all right, so, you know, to use a very timely example, if you are anti-abortion, I can look past and forgive everything else, the misogynism, the sexism, the collusion, all that kind of stuff. I don't care about any of that. You're anti-abortion. You're my man. Cool. That's the negative side of it. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. <laughs> it's, I mean, I, you talk about it really matter-of-factly, but I think being able to think about those things and not get riled up, especially in the moment, uh. is kind of a big deal. And <laughs> takes a decent amount of, of social social awareness. So well, it was interesting to hear you. To I think write the about older you get, the mellower you should be. So. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know how old you were when that happened, but uh, not that old. <laughs> not that old. Yeah. <laughs> I was probably in 19, let's say 1990. I was born in 54. So that's 36 years old. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Born so, the same year as my mom. All yeah, right. Yeah. In the zone. Yeah, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit there. You? <laughs> um, when you're looking at things like, cool, these people, I love the surfing because it provides almost like a perfect analogy for everything it that's does. going on. I can explain the whole world in terms of Yeah, surfing. I yeah. think you could. It, I could. Like, how, how can I catch more waves? How, how can I be more like that? And like, okay, my goal is to be the person that catches so many waves that people start to complain about me. There, there's... Throughout your life, it seems like you've set goals. And this is important to me because it gave me a little bit of freedom because I like I like stuff. Like, you like cars. I love, I love cars. I like to have those things. And you mentioned in the book that maybe you don't know exactly what your purpose is yet, what, what's motivating you, and that it's okay to be motivated by things that are seemingly materialistic as yeah. long as you get motivated. That, you know, so, so to give the audience a little more information, um, when I was growing up, there was a time where 
some my friend's father or something like that gave me a ride in a 911. It was like it was lime green 911 T, I think. Okay, so this is way before fuel injection and all that kind of stuff. Right. You know, air cooled, rear engine, all that stuff. Very good. That was like a monumental moment in my life. And then in college, my college roommate came from a very wealthy family, and one night we were out at dinner. And I, I came home with his mom, and his mom let me drive her Ferrari Daytona. Okay? Holy shit. <laughs> and then in college, uh, also in college, one of my friend's fathers was a very famous cardiologist. And he drove a 275 uh, Ferrari uh, also. And so, you know, in, in like the Sandra Bullock movie the, where she's in the beauty contest, right. undercover FBI agent, mm-hmm. everybody has to go up and talk about, you know, what's important to them, and it's world peace and, you know climate control, climate change, whatever, right, you, you know, and so th- that's what people expect, you know, you ask uh, 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 a well-known, successful person, you know, what motivated you, you have to say, oh, I wanted to dent the universe, I wanted to change the world, I wanted to make people more creative and productive, and I've kind of done some of that, but I'll tell you something, what motivated me to study and work my ass off when I was young is, I didn't want to change the world, I wanted to change the car, and so, um, so you know, am I embarrassed about that? Obviously, not really. No, I mean, well, <laughs> I'm telling you everybody. About it, yeah. <laughs> but you know, so I look at it and say, so what? So I was motivated by wanting to buy a Porsche. That led me to study and work hard. What's the problem? Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> Again, I think it's that it's reading something like that from someone such as yourself would give people who or maybe be feeling a little bit of shame around that yeah, thing yeah, yeah. or walking around maybe feeling lost like I don't know what I'm doing here like I I really just want to improve my financial situation (laughs) and I kind of feel bad about it because everyone else especially you know I open up my phone or I open up my computer and it's everybody's changing the world and and here I am and to hear those perspectives (laughs) from someone like you it honestly I think can give some people like just this little bit of sigh of relief. Like, I'm not the only one who thinks about these things. You know, like, I mean, you, you can make the case that Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook to find dates. It wasn't about, you know, increasing communication between people. <laughs> I mean, right. I'm going to talk to girls. Yeah, yeah. right. So I, I, one of the things I learned is that if you are successful and victorious, et cetera, et cetera, you can reinvent history. <laughs> I mean, you could say, like I could, I could, if I was totally full of shit, I could say, well, the reason why I went to work for Apple is I wanted to democratize computing. I wanted to make it so that more people could be productive and creative by using the power of computing. Oh, man, I, I'm bringing a tear to your eye, right? But really, I just wanted to make money so that I could buy a Porsche. <laughs> You, you say that you just wanted to make money, and maybe that was true, but you, when you go in on something, yeah. it seems like you go in all the way. Or nothing. Or nothing. Yes. And when you're bought into, whether it's a company or a, a culture, and I've got a couple theories on this, but, <laughs> but with Apple and Macintosh specifically, you, you go in so hard that even when you divorce yourself from the company... You're still like a huge evangelist yes, and yes. ambassador for them. So, I mean, well, when you wrote the Macintosh way, you were not working at Apple. No. Um, so here's the thing. So, you know, evangelism is it means bringing the good news. So I brought the good news of 
Macintosh. Made people more creative and productive. So whereas sales is not necessarily bringing the good news, sales is about commissions and quotas and personal income, right? So evangelism, I'm bringing the good news. I have your best interest at heart. I think you should use Macintosh and I think you should use Canva because those two things will make you more effective. Don't get me wrong. If you use a Macintosh or Canva, it was also good for me. But really, I'm telling you to use Canva today because it'll help you make better graphics and you will be a better communicator. That's not the sales approach. The sales approach is I have to open up so many accounts, I have to get so many things, I have to get so much commission, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, you could make the case that true test of evangelism, true test of good news, of the purity of having the other person's best interests at heart is after you leave the company. So it's not like the day after I left Apple, I started everybody, it's not like the day after I left Apple, I started telling everybody to use a Windows computer, right? right? Because frankly, that's just not the truth, right? And so, you know, at some point I won't be working for Canva. It's not gonna be like, I'm gonna tell you, okay guys, I left Canva, now use Photoshop. Right. That ain't gonna happen. I, arguably, what I believe is that your, your approach to being that ambassador or, or that evangelist is the most ideal sales approach that you can have, even if you're not trying to sell. Yes. And we see that in our wholesale program. So we, we sell people coffee. Yeah. Right? And we have really good coffee. This is in markets and... Um, anywhere, I think. Yeah. I think uh, people who are the best salespeople truly believe in what they're doing and are not doing it to get those numbers, yeah. but actually have their guests or clients' best interest at heart. So yeah. our program, there, there's a ton of people that people could buy coffee from. There's a ton of coffee companies. And we're not blind, even though we love our coffee, we're not blind to the fact that there are a ton of other coffee companies that roast really good coffee. But we have a certain value system that we, we run our company by, and we have a certain mission statement. And our theory is, if you believe the same things that we believe, we are going to be the best wholesale provider for you. And if you don't believe those, the same things that we believe at our core, no, no amount of me telling you how awesome our coffee is, how like direct trade, farm to table, the whole <laughs> yeah, thing yeah, is, yeah. It, it doesn't matter because there's... There's a values mismatch because at the right. end of the day, I'm just trying to put another 150 pound, 200 pound account <laughs> in the portfolio, and I think people can feel that. I think so too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and that's the difference between evangelism and sales. I uh, have this um, theory that even though it was far before the the digital age as we know it, and you maybe weren't the first person to do it. Yeah. You were certainly the most popular. You might be the original influencer, as we say today, oh, in, in terms of... Shit. I not, wish that was true. You know what I mean? Because there's... Yeah, but I don't, I don't get 100,000 per Instagram post, you know? Uh, but you've done pretty decently <laughs> for yeah, yourself. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not Kim Kardashian. <laughs> right. And I don't mean influencer in the way that maybe people would, would mean it today, where yeah. it's like... Kim Kardashian. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, the value of those influencers is, you know, up for grabs, well, depend, depending on what you value. I, I, you know, I very seldom sell posts. Right. Right? So I post about Canva. I'm chief evangelist of that company. I truly believe. 
Uh, I happen, I post about stuff I love. So I love the products of Anchor, A-N-K-E-R, you know, the cables and mm -hmm. the chargers. I just love their stuff. And uh, it's not like a, I, I'm a shareholder of Pearson Arrow or anything, but I love Pearson Arrow. I post about Pearson Arrow all the time, right? And I'm, I'm an evangelist for Pearson Arrow because I truly do believe that, you know, Bob Pearson changed my life with his board, and he could change your life with his board, and, he, and he's not going to send you out there on an eight-foot foamy. And so I can evangelize Pearson Arrow because I truly believe in Pearson Arrow and Macintosh and Canva and Anchor, and there's a thermometer. Seriously, there's a thermometer called Meter, M-E-A-T-E-R, which already, that okay. is the world freaking best name <laughs> for a thermometer. Yeah. yeah. So this meter thermometer is Bluetooth. You stick it in your chicken or your turkey or your roast, and you have your phone, and it's telling you the temperature of the meat. And when poultry hits 160 degrees, you get a little notification. Your turkey is done. That's kind of G. I and like that a lot. <laughs> have you ever seen this? No, thing? I've never heard of it. Do you cook chicken or turkey? All or? the time. Okay. Meter will change your life. <laughs> I promise you. I love it. And, you know, am I a meter <laughs> shareholder or employee? Not at all. Right. And, but even, even prior yeah. to social media, Instagram, Twitter, <laughs> you, you have this really interesting case study of <laughs> you've kind of built a career by speaking up on what you believe in. True. Selling, maybe it's not direct sales, as in you're not a salesperson, but evangelizing the things that you love. And uh, I, I love good stuff. <laughs> I think that's really interesting. <laughs> I, I thought it was funny in the book that you're, you're really good about calling out things that you like, but you're also equally as good about like just a tiny little, <laughs> tiny little nudge when something doesn't go, go quite as right. In the, the example of when you bought the, when you bought the chickens. Yeah. You bought the chickens. <laughs> And two of them turned out to be roosters. Roosters, yeah. That, and, was, that was a little bit of a problem. Yeah. And you're like, I guess chicks.com doesn't know what, <laughs> what's a hen and what's a rooster. And I thought it was interesting because you, you didn't have to say the name, but it's just a little, a little <laughs> nudge. It's just kind of this like honest review cycle yeah, in yeah, real time. Yeah, yeah. I try. <laughs> I try. <laughs> um, you do a lot of speaking. Yes. Can I tell you my favorite part of the book? Yeah. And... If I'm right, I don't think you wrote this. Someone was. You had that section where people, people were writing about you. Lessons That's they the learned. Ohana they chapter. learned from you. Yes. The Ohana chapter. Yes. And there was the section about you negotiating the prices for your speaking. Yeah. And you would enter in with whatever price it costs. Let's say I don't know, twenty five hundred bucks just for a case study. Twenty five hundred. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. That's the airfare, bro. Okay. <laughs> Bring, bring me a number. What's a real number here? What's uh, a... Go finish your story. I'll okay. tell you the real number. It's just an example number. Okay. It's just an easy to round. So someone else says, uh, you know, we, we can't do it for that amount. Like, let, let's, how about we'll pay you 2000 bucks instead of 2500 <laughs> Again, theoretical numbers. And instead of negotiating with them, you pull this one, which is, I'll tell you what. I'll come there and I'll, I'll do the speech. If I don't get a standing ovation after the speech is done, 
it's free. You don't owe me anything. However, <laughs> if I do get a standing ovation when it's done, you pay me double. It's a double or nothing yeah. thing. I thought that was the most <laughs> fucking brilliant, brilliant negotiation strategy that I had ever heard. And you know what? No one has ever taken me up on that. That's <laughs> why it's so genius, because you're, you already know your value. And I don't mean to insult your value by throwing out such a small number, but you, you know what you're worth. You know in pretty much every case that if someone's talking to you, they know who you are, they know what you can bring, and they know what kind of results you have. And when you say it like that, they're pretty damn sure that, yeah, he's probably going to get a standing ovation. And yeah, that's going to give me the value that I need. And where did you come up with that? I, I, I would just cork hit me in the brain one day. I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I think it's a very interesting negotiating ploy because it's, I'm saying that, okay, I believe in myself so much, I'll do it for free if it's not a standing ovation. I wish somebody would take me up on that. It would be very interesting. And, um, but I, I have a lot of other sort of stories about speeches. So another thing is you know, to understand the concept of sort of uh, pegging people or framing people, right? So, you know, if, let's take a hypothetical number. So let's say um, somebody asks, you know, how much do you call, charge to speak? So you throw out the number 50,000. Right. It would take someone with, you know, brass ovaries and balls to say, we're thinking more like 5,000 because it's socially unacceptable. Somebody says, I'm, I get 50, you come back with a 90% discount, you know, say so they've got to come up with something between 25 and 50. So you've prevented some, a problem because you said, this is what it usually is. Do not freaking insult me by saying 5,000. You've the, anchored them up I've here. anchored them, exactly. That's the term I was searching for in my senile brain. The flip side is, if you're buying, you know, you put out the number where we're thinking about spending 5,000. Then it takes a speaker with brass balls or ovaries to say, well, no, my fee is 50,000. So, you know, it takes someone, it takes some courage. Some, somebody says 5,000, you come back with 10x. Right. Because you're basically, you're setting that tone, you're setting that anchor, and then whoever is fucking gnarly enough to throw that gap out there, <laughs> right, you're like, right. whoa, this but, guy. But just so you know, I am gnarly enough. I bet you are. <laughs> With that negotiating tactic, I bet it was. And it's interesting, too, and I think I know another reason, aside from that you are giving amazing speeches, why no one's taking you up on that offer. Because the person who would take you up on that offer arguably doesn't believe in you. <laughs> because if they're thinking in their mind that they're going to save money by getting yeah. the speech for free, they're basically betting on you to not fail. getting a standing ovation. Yeah, which and is that's not going to be good for yeah. them either. But I, I never thought of it that way. That's true. But I think what really enters into people's minds is, you know, how do I go to my boss and say, okay, we have a speaker's budget and guy is either going to be zero or 100000 <laughs> I mean, you know, how do you budget for that? That varies. That's fair, yeah. You're running it up the chain at that point. Right, right, right. So good news is standing ovation. Bad news is <laughs> 2X. What about the time that you spent $750,000 more than your budget? Well, yeah, well, see, <laughs> this is a Macintosh division story. The perception was Macintosh didn't have software, so we had to figure out a way to change that perception. And one of it was give all the, the Apple Salesforce and the dealer Salesforce 
a box of software. So, you know, you plop this box down and, you know, that changes your perception. And so my boss, who's director of marketing, said, Mike, Mike Murray said, all right, that's the plan. Let's do that. So I went off and, you know, negotiated $750,000 worth of software to give everybody. And I thought, you know, my boss said, do it. I did it. <laughs> and then come to find out my signature authority was 5000 bucks. So I was $745,000 ahead of my budget and my signature authority. And so, yeah, that, <laughs> that was a hairy moment. But in my mind, I did what he said, do it. I did it. And everything was fine. I and didn't get you got, fired. You got a little scare. Yeah, well. And I think that <laughs> aside from you just going above and beyond and getting done what you needed to get done, it's, it speaks more about the culture of the company at the time, too, that although there was value in the budget, there was a really big value <laughs> in being able to get results. Yes. And, and getting it done when you say you well, could get it done. Well, one of the concepts in the Macintosh division was ask for forgiveness, not permission. So <laughs> that definitely pushed the edge of that one. I, I wish more people would adopt that yeah. because a lot, of, a lot of people in a lot of different workforces, and I, I see this specifically, you know, have a lot of experience in cafes and places like this where if you're the quote-unquote low, lowest person on the totem pole or you just got the job, you, you enter in the workplace with a lot of fear. Yeah. You're afraid to make decisions because you're afraid of the outcome because a lot of people have bosses or managers or leaders that will punish you for doing something bad. But I feel like that really stifles productivity and the ability to move through problems because all day you're going to encounter things that you weren't specifically trained for. Yeah. Spe like, example, in the cafe, if someone comes in and asks for something that wasn't on the menu or had a weird experience, you know, we have a power to please to where anybody behind the counter has the power to make it right. They can make a decision. You know, if you have a crappy experience here today, Sam can be like, you know what, guy? Like, sorry that your coffee took so long. I'm going to I'm gonna give you your coffee. money back, and I'm going to give you a bag of coffee to take home, and that's fine. And they don't have to ask anybody yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah. And That's the Rich Carlton. Right. right. And that you don't have to worry about, like, oh, I was giving away product or whatever. And we've seen that it... Obviously, it's great for the, for the guests. The guest experience yeah. is high. But the empowerment that people feel when they can actually make decisions concept, and, huh? and affect the organization is, is huge. Yeah, I mean, and this is, this is, it says a lot about a person that you either believe the glass is half empty or half full, right? And half full people would say, the half full boss would say, you know, that's empowerment. That's good. Rising tide floats all boats. That customer will come back. Ten more times and buy more coffee. Over the long run, very profitable sale. That person will tell people, go to Cat and Cloud, right? That's the big picture. The little picture is, oh, my God, I gave a $10, I don't know, how much is a bag of coffee? Yeah, I've 14 no bucks. 14 bucks. So, you know, you know, that person has to come and buy, I don't know, five cups of coffee before we break even. Well... Yeah, yeah it's, it's <laughs> not as simple as the mathematics of a no. one-time situation. That's you not... Know, if you can generate a repeat... Repeat user, which you talk about in Macintosh's marketing, is that the thought process that if we can get people in on the ground level, they're probably going to be Mac user for, for life. their life, yes. Yeah. And yes. I, as a Mac user myself, I can say that that's, that's <laughs> totally true. And you know Jared, our other business partner, Charles, yeah. he uses like some, he, he's got like a PC and he just, well, we just give him shit all the time. And, <laughs> and he loves to make fun of us. He's like, that thing doesn't do this, that, and other. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure it, I'm pretty sure it does. But that, that type of brand loyalty that you, that you can generate when, when I look at something 
like Apple for for me, I don't really care about computers necessarily. I don't really care about the company necessarily, but I it's nice to see someone making something that's intuitive, easy to use, and looks awesome, and I know it's never gonna have any problems. And that for me is I don't know if that's all true about Macintosh, but you know, it's closer than Windows. Uh, yeah, I mean when Windows like I mean I have infinitely less problems with my computer than yeah. when I used to run a Windows PC. But that stuff for me is worth cool. I spent a thousand more bucks. Well, I mean, that's the difference between price and value, right? So the price of a Macintosh is never less than a Windows machine, but the value of a Macintosh is always more than a Windows machine because you have to take into account viruses, training, support, upgrading, you know, all that other stuff. Unless you value your time as zero, <laughs> Macintosh is cheaper. Right. Yeah. What is... Now that you're on your 15th book, and you <laughs> yeah. kind of mentioned that like pretty much every book that you've ever written, you ever thought, hey, this is probably going to be my last book. And I think and then, that now. And then there comes another one, and there yeah. comes another one. If we rewind the story to when initially you were, you were starting, you're like, cool, I just want to upgrade the car that I drive. You know? <laughs> I drove the Porsche. I want to get in that Porsche. <laughs> now you, you got the Mercedes. Yeah. You're, you're a brand ambassador for them. It's all, it's all dialed in. What's motivating you to continually share the lessons that you've learned and to keep writing books? Well, I don't know if I'll write another book, but I still have two kids with tuition. So because I quit Apple twice and turned down Steve for a third job, I still have to work. If I had not done any of those three, we might be having a wrong, different discussion. <laughs> but anyway, so I still have two tuitions. Um, and I'm not... I'm not ready to just wake up in the morning and watch Fox all day, right. <laughs> okay? Uh, and I, I, you know, I have a theory. I, I know someone who's a molecular biochemist or something like that uh, up at, at SPU. And he's very well recognized as an expert in brains. <laughs> and so... We were once speaking, I said, so, you know, to prevent Alzheimer's, to prevent, you know, your loss of mental ability, do I do crossword puzzles? Do I do Sudoku? So, I, you know, whatever, do you, you know, whatever. And, and he said, you know what? The only thing that has shown any evidence is physical exercise. You have to have physical exercise. So, surfing, <laughs> I mean, right? So you, you know, you, what could be better than that? I mean. Right, so, surf, right, surf. surf. Come drink coffee. Come what, drink coffee. What else? I mean, life is good. It's, dude, so. life is good, man. <laughs> Judging by the book, life is good. The, the book, dude, I love it. Thank it's you. awesome. There, Much of it was written here. You know, I heard <laughs> that, and I'll tell you a story, actually. Yeah, yeah. You told the story in the book about how... You had one of your boards made, and you did the unboxing of the board yeah. at the surf shop yeah, where yeah, you yeah. got it. And <laughs> someone saw you out in the water and said, are you Guy Kawasaki? <laughs> and you're like, yeah, it's me. He's like, oh, cool. I didn't recognize you, but I recognize your board. <laughs> and the same thing happened with me. Because I told you the last time we talked, which is like the first time we talked, yeah. that I wrote Art of the Start, or yeah. I read 
read The Art of the Start <laughs> yeah. when I was working in San Francisco, and I, I used to have a BART ride to work every day. This was about 2006, and I was kind of interested, and in, I was like, maybe someday I'll have a business. So I, this was the book to read, so I was reading it on BART. And Grace, one day, I'd seen you in here a bunch of times. Grace the Roaster? Grace the Roaster. Yeah. She said something, something, Guy Kawasaki something, and pointed at you, and I was like, that's him? And she's all, yeah. I'm like, shut the fuck up. Are you serious? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, holy shit. And it was amazing. You were in the coffee shop every day, just yeah, drinking coffee yeah, yeah. and writing books, and never even thought about it. Well, you wanted me to hold up a sign? I think Guy that, Kawasaki? No, I thought, I thought it was amazing. I, I think it's just interesting, because you, you talk about in the book that you're like, don't take yourself so seriously. Like it's not that it's not that big of a deal. And in this the story when the the girls pulled up next to you and motioned for you to roll your window and they're like, Are you Jackie Chan? Yeah, right, that was, and you were was for a second funny. you're like, I'm a big shot. Oh no. They have no idea who I am. I'm just a regular dude doing regular things. But you know what? I mean someday some girl's gonna ask Jackie Chan to roll down his window and ask him if he's Guy Kawasaki. That that's gonna be So that's what I That's what's up. That and people are going to complain that I catch too many waves. Those are my two goals in life. When you got to have goals in life. When those things happen, we'll, we'll sit down and talk again. <laughs> okay. and we'll see what's going to go down. Okay. Dude, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. It's, I'm, I'm really grateful for, for the existence of Cat and Cloud uh, because I, if I'm in Santa Cruz, I'm here once a day. That's almost for sure. And... Uh, you could use a few more electric plugs. Yeah, we hear that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I think you should have a VIP password protected, extra fast oh, Wi-Fi uh, Extra hot hotspot? Yeah, extra okay. hot hotspot. You know, you need the cat and cloud VIP status. Okay. That could be just me. Just yours. <laughs> But I would like, you know, 250 megabits okay. or something like that. I'm going to write, write that down. I'm writing that down. 250 for guys. Megabits. All right, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. It's added to the just, dream just list. Just name the network. 250 megabits 250. for guy. Yeah. That's going to be it. Password protected. Hell yeah. Password well, can be wise guy 2019. You know, something hard to figure out. Don't give out. it to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> You gotta keep it on the download. Right, we'll get I'm it down. a generous guy. I know. If they listen to this and they saw that network and use it, God bless them. You're you're way too nice. <laughs> That's real. All right. Thanks again for coming. Thank it was you. good talking to you. All right. Dude, that was awesome. That's fun.